Well, if you will begin to turn in your Bibles there on either page 858 or 982, we are going to read from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 17. And I just want to remind you as we're turning to that text of a few things. Before I do that, I'd just like to say thank you for letting me be with you over these past several weeks this summer. Thank you for your kind expression of thanks, but it's been a privilege to be with you, and I do hope the Lord would have us crossing paths together soon. Well, as we've been looking at this book of 1 Peter, remember that Peter is writing to a group of Christians who need to hear how to remain faithful to Jesus, and in so doing, how to see what the title of our sermon is today, how to see good days. Peter will talk about that, but good days, I like that. How about you? How about you? Don't you just want to see good days? Uh, we, we, we long for that. And yet here in his kindness, uh, Peter is going to tell us how to do that. How to see life work best as it were. To see you and to see your neighbor flourish. So Peter's going to show us a way. Let's read together and let's learn what he has to teach us today. I'm reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8-17. through 17. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing for whoever desires to love life and see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open, our eyes and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer, for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Well, brothers and sisters, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Would you remain standing? Let's go to the Triune God together and ask Him to bless the hearing and the preaching of His Word. Father, Son, and Spirit, we do come before You now as men and women in need of Your grace, in need of Your mercy. Lord, we ask that You would meet with us now. That You would, by Your Spirit, open our hearts that we might hear You. Would You be with Your servant now as He speaks? And we ask, O Lord, that You would be with all of Your servants. We're here, O Lord. Speak. Meet with us, we pray. In your name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Well, we continue in the, 
in the, in the book of First Peter, look, taking a look at what he has to speak to us. You'll remember maybe the last time that I was here, I spoke on um, submission to governing authorities, and then like a, uh, you know, then like smart, a smart man, I got out of town and uh, went on vacation for a few weeks, and I've just missed the preaching of uh, instruction to husbands and wives, and so now I'm back. Uh, Mama didn't raise no dummy, as they say. And so it's glad to be, I'm glad to be back with you. I'd like to begin by sharing a story with you. Many years ago, a friend of mine and I took a trip up to Boston to take in some baseball and to enjoy all that Beantown had to offer. We took in the sights, we watched the Sox drop a game to the Rays, and we found ourselves having one of the best dining experiences that I've ever had in my entire life. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but I love to eat. I love to enjoy good food and good meals, and not just because of the good food or the drink around the table, but the experience of sitting with loved ones, losing track of time, and having the night get lost in conversation. Feasting, in some sense, is sacramental, right? It points to something greater. If you've ever experienced that, you know what I'm talking about. Robert Capone, the writer, he once nails it when he talks about food in this way. He says, food... Food's eternal purpose is to furnish our sensibilities against the day when we shall sit down at the heavenly banquet and see how gracious the Lord is. I like that. I like that. And on this particular day in Boston, I experienced something of heaven's banquet. We were walking in Little Italy. For you Italians in the, in the group, then you will know where I'm going with this. When a rather burly man, a hairy-armed Italian man welcomed us from behind his newspaper into his restaurant. He quickly snapped at his waitstaff to seat us. Over and over he would check in on us, bringing us all of the best that his kitchen had to offer. And from start to finish, his kindness and his graciousness were over the top and yet completely sincere. We were treated like royalty to him. And we talked, in fact, and I was from Tennessee at the time, and uh, at that time, the, the basketball coach down in Memphis was a man named John Calipari who coaches now at Kentucky, but he had recently coached some four years prior up in Massachusetts. And it was funny, as we were leaving, as he asked us where we were from, he said, well, you're from Tennessee. As we said, yes. And he said, you know John Calipari, which I thought that was hilarious, as if there were three people in the state of Tennessee, me and my buddy and Coach Calipari, and we were just tight running buddies or something. Well, we laughed. We told him, thank you. And then something that has never happened happened to me before or since. The big, burly maitre d' stuck out his hand. I shook it, and then he pulled me in. He hugged me. He kissed me right here. And then he slapped me on the back of the neck. And he said, your family. Your family. Now, I know that I'll never, ever see that man again in my life. But if that's what it means to be in his family, I want to be in it. And I bet you would too. And here I have to say to you that Peter picks up in this passage all sorts of familial language, and he applies it to the church. He applies it to believers. And this is what he's going to say. Let me remind you a little bit, though, of our context. Peter here is in a stretch of instructions about how to live faithfully as God's people. I already touched on this. Before governing authorities, in the midst of unbelievers, 
in, in um, how slaves ought to re respect their, their, their masters. And we might translate that now to how we ought to live before those who have oversight of us in our work and our employment and in our, in our vocations. And then to husbands and to wives. And now Peter directs his words. Did you catch it there in verse 8? He says this, finally, all of you. And so his scope widens as he begins to talk to all of us now in his instruction. But here is the thing that is so critical for you to understand. That Peter is in the midst of a section describing how to live if you were to turn your Bible back to chapter 2, verse 11, where he says this. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. In other words, he is giving instruction on how to live before a non-believing, before a world that does not share the same beliefs that we do. And this section still comes within that context. He's teaching us how to live over and over again as exiles and sojourners. A theme that he has picked up on all over again. And he says this to all of us, all of us, that this is the type of family that we ought to be if we are going to live faithfully to Jesus as strangers and exiles in this world. And I just want to suggest two headings for you today. Feel free to write them down if you'd like. He's teaching us about two ways, two types of community that we ought to be. First of all, we'll take a look at it. He tells us and describes to us a seeking community. And then secondly, he teaches and tells us about a suffering community. A seeking community and a suffering community. And here's what I would like to say before we jump in. This text is profoundly straightforward. You know, and even when I was preparing it, I was like, well, where's the, like, punch in this? Where's the panache, you know? Where's the, where's the sort of, uh, moment in it all? And I just want to say, it comes to us straightforwardly. And in fact, that might be profoundly dangerous to some of us. Because we tend to look over what is so ordinary and mundane. And God is going to invite us again to see that the mission of the church, the mission of the church, rests on ordinary, practical ways of living. That's what's so profound I want you to see today. So let's take a look. Let's take a look uh, at this idea of a seeking community. Turn with me, or turn your eyes rather to verses 8 through 12. Peter begins to open up by saying, finally all of you, and right out of the gate, Peter gives us five dispositions of the heart, as I'm going to call them, habits of heart, if you will, virtues that, the, that he longs for us to cultivate and that need to be cultivated in relationship to one another. You see them right there. Unity of mind, sympathy, a brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. These are these dispositions that we are to seek. There it is. That we are to have with one another in relationship to one another. I'll briefly touch on all five. This idea of unity of mind is like-mindedness. And it refers to, as one commentator puts it, having a common heritage of faith and ethical system. It is foundational because it was, it was what links people from different socioeconomic classes, from different races, from different regions, and yes, even different religions all together in belief in Christ. That is what it does. And also this idea of sympathy, 
or of understanding or compassion. It's the idea of the capacity to be able to see, to be, to see things deferentially from other people, from other people's point of view. It is to be able to enter into their circumstance and to take on eyes, as it were, through their own skin. Thirdly, brotherly love. This assumes, along with this next virtue, that Peter views the Christian community as family. These were terms applied to kinship relationships. And Peter is saying brotherly love, this idea of loving one another as family. This idea, fourthly, of a tender heart. You see it there. Uh, this, the actual Greek rendering is kind of funny. Kids, you can write this down if you'd like. It actually doesn't say a tender heart. It actually says good bowels, which I like that. That's kind of funny. Uh, we think of bowels as one thing, but the ancient Greek and Roman world thought of bowels as being the seat not the heart, but our, our stomach, our tummies being the seat of our longings and our desires. Sometimes we know that when we uh, see a child in our language today, we sometimes say, oh, they're so cute, I could just what? You just eat them up, right? Because we have a longing for them. That's the picture there of how we ought to relate to one another. And lastly, the idea of a humble mind. It's a way of saying this, that I declare myself powerless to defend myself. It's a way of looking at the believer, the brother and sister in Christ, and saying, my rights get laid down for you. My rights get laid down for you. This would have been seen as incredible weakness in the ancient Greco-Roman world, but not for the Christian family. Here's my point, brothers and sisters. Peter is showing us that in all of this, that these virtues, he wants us to see, he assumes that Christians will seek one another out as we seek to develop and cultivate these virtues in our own hearts within our Christian community. Now we might say, Brian, if I actually lived like this, that means that I would be giving up a whole heck of a lot for myself. And I want to say that is exactly what Peter is saying. You see, Peter is no dummy. He knows exactly what he's writing. And I think sometimes we can read this list of virtues and go, yeah, but he doesn't really expect for us to live like that, does he? Oh, and he most certainly does. He calls for us to live this way. Which is, which is to say as well, even when we are met with opposition in that way, he gives us resource for being able to, to know how to do it, deal with that. Did you catch it there in verse 9? He says this. He says... Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. That is, if I seek these postures of heart and develop them in my life, then people around me who do not share these virtues may in fact ridicule me. There might be social cost. And yes, exactly, right all over again. And Peter knows that. And to ratchet this up, I want you to begin to see something profound that Pastor Mark said just a moment ago. For those of us who would revile us, for those of us who would curse us, do you see what Peter commands? He commands non-neutrality. We're not allowed to remain indifferent and say, well, they bless me, I'll just kind of keep my mouth shut. I mean, they curse me, I'll keep my mouth shut. What does he say? To bless. To bless. To speak good of. To think good of. To do good to. This is the high calling that the Christian family is called to embody. 
Which means the sadness of when it doesn't happen. Look what Peter has to say there in these next verses, from verses 10 to 11. He cites Psalm 34, and he grounds this, and he's saying this, that it has always been the way of God's people, that seeing good days, there in verse 9, consists in living and loving this way. And if we want to see our life flourish and to go well with us, we will in fact live this way. Not in a way that tries to secure our own salvation as if our behavior in this way is somehow going to secure the smile of God for us. No, but rather demonstrates that we already have it. Cultivating, seeking these postures of heart are the path to seeing good days. And by contrast, to live oppositely is to see in verse 12 something that all of us should shudder to read. And so, so the point I'm trying to get at is that Peter urges us to unity of mind and compassion. And he assumes that there will be a substantial difference that are, between, that are brought together under this unity and compassion. And this is what makes, I must say this now, what makes the events of the past couple of days in the news in Charlottesville so utterly tragic. Believe me, brothers and sisters, I did not want to get up and talk about this but I would forfeit my prophetic responsibilities to speak into real harm and real injustice where that happens and occurs. Let me put this in no uncertain terms. That when the events of the past couple of days are done so in the name of Christ or by those who take the name of Christ, it is not only particularly saddening, but it is to bring shame and sorrow upon Christ's bride. The white supremacy movement, white nationalism movement, or whatever else you would like to call it, is not only sinful and antithetical to the gospel, it is wrong. And it's wrong because of what Peter lays forth here. You see, there is mercy for sin, but it is sin nonetheless. And it's heartbreaking to the non-white man who is brown-skinned, who sits currently on the throne of the universe, who has spilt his red blood for folks who come from different cultures and different races than himself. This ought to sober every single one of us. And it ought to bring sorrow into our hearts. And it ought to cause the church of Jesus Christ to weep and to long for reconciliation. I long for all of us to be this sort of people because even within the church, verse 12 says this, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. May that sober us. May it sober me. My own heart needs to hear that this morning. So one quick way of applying this before we move on May you ask God to show you one of these five habits of heart and then ask him, where have I been lacking in putting this on display within my church community? Remember, by necessity, all of these assume an other person dynamic. So you might ask the Lord, where am I lacking in sympathy? Who have I withheld it from and why? Why have I not been able to enter into the sorrows and the pains of other people? You might come to see that 
it costs you your resources and your time. But I want to show you this, that it is there. That the gospel comes to you. That Christ has died for you. And that he has given you all that you need to love well. Well, I just want to say that, and then we should probably move on now to look not only at the idea of a, of a community that seeks the good of our brothers and sisters, but also that suffers well. The idea there is found in, chapter, in verses 13 through 17. Peter says this, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If you were reading this in that day and age, you would have said to Peter, there's a ton of people. <laughs> there's actually a ton of people that would do harm and good. And so Peter is asking this most certainly in a rhetorical fashion. And I just want to highlight four things that Peter says about suffering and what it means to be a community that in fact is called into suffering. Firstly is this, that suffering is likely to come. The language that he uses does not mean that it will come, though Paul does in fact say that in a later writing of his. But Peter is saying that it is a possibility and in fact when it does come, and here's the point, we shouldn't be surprised. That we should not be surprised if we are following in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus. We can expect that suffering might come. And in whatever way that looks like, I don't know. But Jesus will meet us there in the midst of our suffering. And some of you this moment know what that's like. And you are suffering well. And I just want to take a moment to say the Lord Jesus is with you. You know what it's like if you're a high schooler. And you sought to give yourself over to fidelity to Jesus and His ways. And the invitations to the parties, they just don't come. And the, the activities that your friends are a part of, they just don't seem to be offered to you. You're following Jesus. He knows. He's with you. For those of you who have, in your businesses and in your work, have said, I'm going to try to walk with Jesus in my ways, can I just tell you that the harm and the reproach that you suffer, your Lord sees, your Lord knows, and He is with you? It's important for me to tell you that He is. And secondly, I want not only to see that we should expect it, that it should come, but that we have an answer for the reason that the hope we profess. You see it there in verses 15 and 16. He isn't saying that you have to have a PhD in apologetics or presuppositional apologetics even to be able to be a faithful Christian. Many of you don't know what I just said and that's okay. <laughs> Jesus is simply saying, do you, Peter is rather saying, do you know why you believe? And are you ready to be able to talk about that? We live in a day and age where your neighbors and your co-workers and your family members have substantial questions to Christianity. Can we trust the Bible? Has science disproved Christian faith? Well, what about miracles? How could they possibly exist in this world? These are the sorts of questions that people ask. I see it all the time on the, on the college campus. And I just want to ask you, do you know that you have resources right here in your church to be able to explore this and to deepen your understanding and to be deepen the reason for the hope that you profess? It will come. It will be asked. And it is incumbent upon all of us to be able to speak to it when those opportunities come. Thirdly, or rather, I need to say this before I move on. I want you to see this, though. It's very, very important that Christ says this, and that Peter says this, that when you do so, to do it, verse 16, with gentleness and respect. What's the point? As we talk to people about the hope, about the faith that we have, the point is to win people. 
and not arguments. If you win an argument and you lose the person, guess what? You've lost the argument in Jesus' eyes. And so I don't want you to be sharp, intellectual, profound apologists and be jerks in so doing. That cuts against the tenor of what Jesus calls us to. Gentleness and kindness and respect. Thirdly, I'd like for you to see this, that when given the choice to do good or evil, it is better to suffer. It's better to suffer than to do evil. That's exactly what verse 17 says. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The idea of what it means to walk and to, and to stand and to be with Jesus will, in fact, bring some sort of suffering, which leads me to this fourth point, that when you suffer, verse 14, it says it right there, you will be blessed. How many of you think categorically that when I suffer for Jesus, that there is blessing? Do you know that Jesus himself says that? He does. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, blessed are you, this is Jesus, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my, on my account. Jesus says there's real blessing there. And you will know that. And he promises to provide that for you. That is the great hope that you have. I'd like to share a story with you about a writer who has long since passed away. Her name is Corrie ten Boom, and many, many of you are probably familiar with her story. She wrote a book called The Hiding Place, and it tells the story about her um, harboring Jews during the uh, Nazi regime. Uh, and she, was, uh, she tells the own, her own story many, many years later in Munich in 1947, where she was speaking as a Christian on the topic of what it meant to forgive, on what it meant to let go of those hates and those, and those harbor, harboring places of, 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 um, of harm in the heart towards other people. And as she was standing there, a man began to approach her in her line, sort of in the thank you line to talk to her. And I, pardon, me, pardon me as I give you an extended quote, but I want to read her own words. Here they begin. The man approached her, and, uh, and he says this. You, this is from the man, mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. And I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, which is a German term of endearment. His hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven. And I could not it could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing that I ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that if you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. 
Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into, my, into our joined hands. And then the healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried with all of my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. There is blessing in being cursed. There is blessing in suffering. It is the way of our Lord. It is the way of all who seek to follow Him. And there is blessing there. Did you catch what she said? I had never known God's love to me so intensely as I did then. In the act of forgiving, she knew God's love for her. In other words, the ability to suffer the wrong committed against her, although be it long after the fact, was rooted in her seeing God's love for her. And this is exactly what Peter's message to us is. When you have set your hope fully, 1 Peter 1.13, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, you are able to suffer. You are able to permit, as it were. Why? Because there is a greater love than our own comfort, our own wealth, our own status, our own lives. There is Christ and the promise of a renewed body. That is your hope. A new world. That is your hope. And a renewed presence with Him forever and always. That is your hope. The worst suffering that anyone could possibly bring is your death. And instantly, it ushers it in. Ushers you in to your greatest hope. How in the world can we live in such a way? How in the world will the watching world be blessed by us, by living in this way. After all, this is what we're called to. That your conduct among the Gentiles might be honorable, attractive, lovely, and beautiful. How in the world are we able to do this? It didn't get read today, but it follows in verse 18. If you've got your Bible open, I'll invite you to read it. It's profound. For Christ, here's the reason. For Christ also suffered once for sin the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Peter is calling us, brothers and sisters, to be this sort of community, this sort of family, for those inside the church and for the benefit of those outside of it as well. This is the life of those who are sojourners and exiles. Peter is saying that when you've got your heart set on the future hope that is yours, you bring it into the present and you become a community that loves each other this way and is prepared to face suffering should it come. But here's the thing that Peter insists on us knowing. You cannot do this by sheer grit. You will not be able to do this by simply pulling yourselves up by your own bootstraps and trying harder. You don't have the resources to be able to do that. So we're going to need something else. And where does this come from? Well, it comes from Jesus. Seeing Him as the one who did what? 
who sought us. And the one who suffered for us. He is the one who pursued us and in so doing suffered because of it. You see, the stunning news that comes to us in the Gospel of Jesus is that Jesus Himself has come to sinners and bled and died for us. That He is the only one who has kept His tongue, as Psalm 34 talks about, completely away from evil and did only good. He sought peace and pursued it. And what was the result? Not the life that was promised. The result for Jesus was His death. And so that the eyes of the Father on that day on the cross were actually not on the righteous. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father had closed His ear to the Son. The Father turned His face away as we often sing. And why? So that you and me could have it. So that you and me could have the face of God. So what does this mean? That Jesus obeyed perfectly and it cost him his life that we might get the face of God. And when you begin to see this, brothers and sisters, when you see Jesus doing that for you, not him asking you to clean yourself up or to become a better person, uh uh-uh. To the degree that you see Jesus seeking you out when you didn't deserve it and suffering in your place when you in fact did, oh, to that degree, you'll be able to seek out others and to suffer from outsiders if need be. This is profound stuff. This is the calling that Jesus calls us to. And living this way, there really is good days ahead. There's good days ahead, brothers and sisters. Let's lock arms together. Let's walk together and encourage each other along the way. And let's love Jesus and be loved by him. Let's pray. Our Father, would you now, by your Spirit, take these things, make them real to us. We wouldn't just believe them, that we would know them, that it would shape us. (laughs) That Redeemer McKinney would be a church that's magnetic to the watching world that people would see something about the way that we love one another, the way that we give our lives away for one another, that we give up our own rights for one another, and that they would be drawn to the King who has given away everything for His people. We ask that You would do that and that You would bring us the great joy promised, the great blessing promised in so doing. We ask this all in Your name. Amen.